Hello and a very warm welcome to a new episode of the When in Spain podcast. I'm your host, Paul Burge. Thank you for joining me wherever you are around the world. got a great guest for this episode and uh, well I think a very interesting episode as well we're looking at Spanish history and in this episode we're looking at the fascinating and monumental period in Spanish history really the death of Franco in 1975 and Spain's transition to democracy that followed in the late 1970s in this part one of a two-part podcast in fact I had the great pleasure of talking to William Chislett. William is a former Madrid correspondent for the UK's Times newspaper when he reported firsthand on Spain's transition to democracy from 1975 to 1978. So in the late 70s, William was right here based in Madrid, covering all of the unfolding of events that eventually led to a new democracy. Uh, William subsequently spent some time working for the Financial Times based in Mexico, covering Central America before returning to Madrid in 1986, where he still lives. Uh, Luckily, and I caught up with him in a lovely park very close to where he lives. Now, William has written numerous books on Spain, including one which you may well have seen in your local bookstore called Spain, What You Need to Know which incidentally is a really great introduction to Spanish history, society and politics. Um, And William also writes a monthly article called Inside Spain, which is a lively look at Spanish current affairs. And he writes that for the Elcano Royal Institute think tank. Well worth reading if you're interested in Spanish politics and current affairs. And incidentally, William has a new book out called The Microhistoria de España. Uh, It's published in Spanish and it's an updated and extended edition of his 2013 book, Spain, What Everyone Needs to Know. In the interview, William reflects on what life was like in Spain following the death of Franco, what the atmosphere was like on the street, and he also talks us through the key developments that led to the 1977 elections, which were incidentally the first free elections held in Spain since 1936. And he also talks about the enactment of Spain's 1978 constitution, the constitution that we still have in Spain today. Just before we get into the interview with William, uh, just to say that this is a two-part episode. So in this part, part one, we're talking about the transition to democracy. And in part two, we're going to be talking with William again about Spain's future, the challenges it faces, we're looking at education, the economy, employment, Employment, unemployment, social issues, and we'll also be looking at what impact the situation with COVID-19 could have on Spain in the future. So that will be part two, which I'm going to start editing ASAP and hopefully get that published during the weekend or at the beginning of next week. So enough for me. Here's the interview with William Chislett. Españoles. Franco. Ha muerto. Quisiera en mi último momento unir los nombres de Dios y de España y abrazaros a todos para gritar juntos por última vez en los umbrales de mi muerte ¡Arriba España! ¡Viva España! (risa) 
nuestras oraciones y mira con piedad a tus hijos que lloran apenados. William, thank you for taking the time to join me on the When in Spain podcast. I would like to start off really talking about your initial perspectives and observations when you arrived here, when you worked as a correspondent for the Times newspaper between 75 and 1978. And you were actually quite young when you arrived. Am I right in saying you were about 24 years old? I was 23 when I arrived in 74, having spent three and a half years working on a provincial newspaper in Darkest Surrey, which was not my home area, which is Oxford. And I came in 74 because my girlfriend and wife was teaching and I, I got my title, so to speak. Came here and then everyone kept saying that Franco really was soon going to die and it was worth hanging around rather than going back and probably the next professional step would be to join an evening newspaper. So Franco yeah. did die in November 75 and I found myself covering a transition along with a guy called Harry de Balius, who was the, the, the correspondent here. Harry had got remarried and uh, had a very long honeymoon so in fact it meant that I actually covered a lot of the stuff at the age of 24 to the age of 27 which I might not otherwise have done. Yeah. And journalism is a very peculiar profession and uh, a large part of it is being in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of it. What I really wanted to ask you about that period was if you could give us some kind of flavour of, of what the atmosphere was like here in Madrid, in Spain. Was there a sense of fear, uncertainty, hope? What struck me was it was a rather grey, sad, melancholic country. I mean, I'm, I'm generalising. People were uncertain, maybe afraid of what was going to happen after Franco died. There were a lot of silly reports going around, including in respectable international newspapers that after Franco there would be civil war but that was soon obvious to me was basically a load of rubbish and was not going to happen. Many things had passed uh, since the civil war not least the fact that um, Spain had become a fairly well-developed um, society and had created a middle class and no one had any interest in going back to the 30s and starting it all over again. It was a very exciting time, obviously, I think probably, now that I look back, seen through the eyes of someone who's now almost 70, but who at the time was in his mid-20s. You know, one was uh, telling the world through a highly respectable newspaper, much more respectable then than it is now. <laughs> like many of them. <laughs> yes, of what was happening here. Yeah. It, it was a big story, and uh, one was thrown into it in the deep end. I particularly remember the return of exile, some of them quite famous, Santiago Carrillo, or interviews soon after he came back, yeah. La Passionaria, all those people that today, you know, difficult to believe that uh, only, well, less than 50 years ago, all this was happening. They seemed like figures almost from from a century ago. The distant past. The society seemed to hang together quite cohesively, but I think once the lid was off, i.e. when Franco died, and was buried up in the Valley of the Fallen, things began to move very quickly, and, um, but for the astuteness of King Juan Carlos at the time, a figure who I think you know, will still go down in history as having done a good job despite his misdemeanors of <laughs> recent of recent years yeah so it was a sort of top down bottom up movement lots of demonstrations i can remember being caught in demonstrations with the, the greases as they were known 
firing off their um, cans of um, tear gas, particularly in the Grand Via. There were a lot of uh, protests in calling for uh, the release of political prisoners, amnesty. It was very much a political story. The economy tend to be tend to have been forgotten about, well, really, until the socialist government of Felipe Gonzalez came in in 1983, when, of course, it was maybe revealed to the public that economically things were not very good at all. You then subsequently left Spain and went on to work as a correspondent uh, in Mexico, and then you had a stint for a few years back in London as well. But you decided to move back to Madrid in 1986. Comparing those two periods of time, comparing the late 70s, and then when you came back in 1986, which is indeed was the year that Spain joined the EEC, now the European Union, were there noticeable changes then? Societal changes, economic changes that happened during those intervening years? Culturally speaking, we also had the, the La Movida, the cultural revolution, as well. well, we came back in '86 deliberately because it was the year it was joining what is now the European Union, which was a, pr- a process I wanted to follow professionally. And also, to be honest, we came back in '86 because we knew it would be the last year one one could buy a house at a reasonable price, which also proved to be the case. The democracy was consolidated. There had been a coup; it didn't last very long. Spain had kept all its wonderful, positive points. There was the economic miracle of the 50s and 60s under Franco. Was there a noticeable continuation of that, the continual growth of the middle classes? The middle classes were very consolidated by the time I came back in 86 and were very visible even when I was first here. I mean, I always joked, even in 86, to my friends in, in the UK that the middle class in Spain, and I'm talking about the 80s now, were living much better than their equivalents in the UK. It just seemed to me that Spanish had better cars, not that cars is an obsession of mine. But then, of course, a lot of this was due to the fact, and I get into the area of cliches here, which I don't like, you know, Spaniards tend to spend their money on outward things rather than on, say, you know, things that can't be seen. The 80s gave me all the signs of being a prosperous country. And then, having joined the European Union, foreign investment took off. There were some harsh economic measures to be taken by the socialists, which they did. Unemployment was high. What I'd like to do is run through key moments of the transition to democracy in a bit more detail. Just uh, after Franco's death, 1975, there was a sense of breaking with the regime too quickly, could provoke a military coup, which didn't happen. There was an attempted one a few years after that. But there was also the sense that moving too slowly, the Spaniards would be frustrated. They were impatient for uh, democratic change. Was there a feeling at the time of that? Was there a necessity for mobilisation at the grassroots level? Because you said this kind of work bottom up and top down. Well, it was immensely complex challenge that faced the government, mainly Juan Carlos. Uh, Whether Franco restored the monarchy in the form of Juan Carlos, thinking that Juan Carlos was going to carry on the dictatorship, of course, is one of those questions that's never ever been resolved. Juro por Dios y sobre los santos evangelios, cumplir y hacer cumplir las leyes fundamentales del reino y guardar lealtad a los principios que informan el movimiento nacional. I myself are convinced that Franco knew that change was going to happen. I had a long meeting with King Juan Carlos in 1977 on the second anniversary of him becoming king, which I managed to get through getting to know his father, Don Juan, who had been in exile in Portugal. I asked him that question 
and he said, well, all I can say is that Franco, Franco gave me no advice about what I should do afterwards, but he just said to me, you'll be able to do things I couldn't do. Now, I've always interpreted that as meaning what I've just been saying. Some people will say, that's rubbish. How could Franco possibly have, have uh, made Juan Carlos head of state knowing that he was going to bring nasty democracy? which, after all, he had said was a bit like giving alcohol to an alcoholic. <laughs> yes, I read that. Because Spain, Spaniards were incapable of being, of having a democracy. I don't know, but anyway, I, I throw it out there. Yeah. The king was rightly called the motor of change, or the engine of change. I mean, let's remember, you know, he had these immense powers which he could have kept for himself and had he wanted to, ruled like Franco. I mean, he had all Franco's powers, but he decided to use them to dismantle the dictatorship, which again, I'm convinced he knew he had to do. Bear in mind, his brother-in-law, King Constantine of Greece, had had to flee Greece. Okay, different situation, but nonetheless, Constantine was kind of bit in cahoots with the military in Greece, and um, that was his downfall. So if Juan Carlos knew that he had to be, as he said in his, in his speech, when I think after he was proclaimed king, I want to be king of all Spaniards, a key phrase picked up by everybody to mean that he wasn't going to maintain Franco's system, which was basically to keep the country divided between the victors, those on his side, and the losers, those who supported the Republic, which yeah. was maintained deliberately during his regime. I mean, July the 18th, the day of Franco's, or the military coup in 1936 against the democratically elected republic was a holiday here. If my memory serves me, you got an extra payment in July. So these kind of things were a way for Franco to remind everyone that, you know, he won the war and he was not going to yield in any sense to those who lost the war. Now Juan Carlos, who was who was born in Rome because his grandfather, Alfonso XIII, uh -huh. and his father, Don Juan, were in exile, knew that if he didn't get a move on with democracy, he probably was going to live up to the communist slogan because Santiago Carrillo called him Juan Carlos el Breve, Juan Carlos the, the Brief. The, the brief. <laughs> didn't expect him to last very long. No, and, you know, he, and Carrillo, to his credit, accepted that he was wrong. I wanted to talk about Carlos Arias, Navarro, who was the Prime Minister, ah, yes. well, until... Was an absolute disaster. Why was he considered such a disaster? Well, Carlos Arias was known as the El Carnicero de Malaga, the Butcher of Malaga. Butcher of Malaga. He was the man who was the, like, the sort of prosecutor immediately after the Civil War, and lots of nasty things went on in Malaga. He was a man of the regime, an ardent Francoist. He was interior minister, just by his age and the fact that he fought in the Civil War, let alone being prosecutor afterwards, he was not the right guy. Why did Juan Carlos keep him on? I think because he had his plan of what he wanted to do, but he didn't want to go straight into that as soon as Franco died. He felt there should be a gradual movement towards the, the actual fate of transition under Adolfo Suarez. Mm -hmm. who no one knew who the hell Adolfo Suarez was, basically. When he, so Arias lost his job. The, the key moment when he lost his job was when a, a Newsweek journalist called Arno de Borch Garve mm -hmm. went and had 
a chat with the king uh, off the record along well similar to one I had in 77 but he wrote a column and although it was off the record and I sus suspect with a wink from the king described Arius as in the words of King Juan Carlos he's an unmitigated disaster, <laughs> mitigated disaster. so that got by then the Spanish press was able to do things that he couldn't do yeah. under the regime so that those words got massively quoted in the Spanish press and in magazines like Cambria that he says uh, which was a new magazine and Triunfo obviously Arius would have seen those words and he knew that time his was his days were numbered it was a his days were numbered so we then move into phase two which was what the king had been planning all along and he managed to keep it a, a secret very successfully a certain a small number of people had to be drawn up a list of candidates to become prime minister and those went to a Consejo del Reino, I think it was called, who pulled one out of the hat. It doesn't really matter who the other names are. There were about four or five names. And Suarez, everyone stood, was just kind of, sort of thrown in, just, I don't know, add an extra name. But all along, he was the guy that the king wanted. Obviously, he'd talked to him before. He knew Suarez from his days as running Spanish TV. He yeah. was a young, a very young minister of the national movement, the only party. Uh, and he was pretty well exactly the same age as Juan Carlos and had not fought in the Civil War, an important point. And a guy called Torquato Fernandez Miranda, he didn't have a, a government job, but he was a very influential man. He'd been a tutor to the king. He saw to it that the name that came out was Adolfo Suarez. Adolfo Suarez. So yeah. this was all a carefully orchestrated movement. Once Suarez, when he was a... I can remember myself writing an article saying another disaster, Adolfo Suarez, a lot better than Arias. But, you know, he was the minister of the national movement. He ran Spanish TV for a couple of years at the very end of the Franco regime. How can this man possibly be the right man for democracy? And a year or two later, I basically, you know, wrote a Mea Culpa article saying, you know, we got it wrong. There was one famous Spanish historian, Ricardo La Sierra, who wrote an article, it may have been in El País, yeah. whose title was Que Desastre, Que Desastre, <laughs> referring to Adolfo Suarez. This was in 1976, the su was summer 70, of... 76. July 76. Exactly. And is it right that Adolfo Suarez, for probably many years before that, had been having quiet words with King Juan Carlos, whispering in his ear, saying, we can change this, we need to do this from the inside? And that was obvious, I think. This was, this was, yeah. the, this was the difference between ruptura, a clean break, or, ref or reforma, reform. Mm -hmm and reform from within using Franco's institutions, which is the clever thing about it, to dismantle. Ruptura was what the communists began with, and to some extent the socialists, but they quickly saw that that had the potential to be violent, to be opposed by the military. As soon as they were convinced that Suarez was at heart a reformist, albeit a young Francoist. I mean, Suarez basically was apolitical, if you, strange as it may sound. You know, he worked the regime for what it was worth for him personally. personally. He was the right man. So once the opposition, the left basically we're talking about, not the right, was, was convinced that Suarez would do what he said he would do, they came on board. A guy called Tiana Galvan, who was uh, the head of a small socialist party, not the PSOE, the main one, no. was, uh, a, a small one which got absorbed by the PSOE, said, if you want to build a house, i.e. Spain, and furnish it uh, without our participation, then forget it. 
but if you want to build a house, i.e. the new Spain, with our participation, then, you know, you can count on us. And they moved slowly to begin with, but then things picked up. I mean, the political parties, trade unions, 77, the, the, the first democratic elections since February 1936. Since 1936, Very few people died. I mean, I was in a covering a demonstration in Victoria in the Basque country. I think it was 76 or was it 77? But anyway, three or four workers had been killed before this demonstration I went to. The demonstration was called over the deaths of these workers who'd been demonstrating for, I don't know, they were demonstrating for amnesty or for labour rights. There was a massive demonstration against the police brutality. We correspondents went up there to cover this. And what was interesting about it was that the greasers, the grey police, who were the sort of the more brutal ones, oh, the Civil Guard were just as brutal. Their habits hadn't really changed. So not everyone was going along with the transition. You know, you don't change a mindset in a year, let alone no, two. Not. One particularly striking incident there was Gordon Martin, the then BBC correspondent, was sitting in a room somewhere. I think he rented a room rather than was in a hotel. And he had a microphone in his hand, a bit like the one you're holding, and he was standing close to a window. And obviously some policeman noticed him from down below in the street and pointed his rifle with a rubber bullet in it and fired it, which not only smashed the window, but it smashed the glass that Gordon had in his hands. He was holding a microphone and a glass, probably whiskey or something. That then gave rise to a protest. Whoever handed in the protest was greeted by a policeman who said something along the lines of, you press come out of my nose like snot. So anyway, that didn't get very far. What I find incredible about the election, the first time since February 1936, was just how many political parties were in. 70, 70 political parties, around 4,000 candidates, all vying for only, what, 350 That's seats right. in the parliament. It may even be more than 70, but anyway, 70 is a huge amount. We have 16 parties represented in parliament today. That's also... A lot, a but lot, yeah. but seventy running, uh, but there were really only a handful that that counted. Interestingly, you know, the party that supported Franco policies and principles outright gained less than one percent of the vote in that election in seventy-seven. You know, the UCD, which was hastily put together, it was six and a very loose alliance of sixteen disparate parties. Uh, liberals, Christian Democrats, Social Democrats, Conservatives, all that kind of stuff, uh, regional parties as well, mm. put together basically as a sort of um, party to oversee the transition. I think it was probably an idea to some extent of Juan Carlos that he wasn't quite sure who was going to win the elections. You know, what would have happened if the Alianza Popular had won, which is the popular party the popular today? Party today yeah. Would they have? He wanted. Suarez to continue. Suarez realised that he had, if he was to continue, he had to have a party. It was very quickly put together, shortly before the elections. Mm -hmm. It was 77. In 83, it was dissolved. They got 165 seats in 1977, and they got 11 seats in 1982, which oh, were the elections won by the socialists under the slogan Para el Cambio, for change. For change which yeah. was, you know, hit very well what Spaniards... The majority of Spaniards wanted. What would happen if Alianza Popular had won? You know, which 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 was basically 
you know, revamped Francoists to some extent, <laughs> pretending that they were so Democrats. Rebranding themselves. It didn't. So the UCD, I think, had a short life uh, and it, you know, was designed to have a short life almost. The other incredible thing about that election is that there would have been people voting that had never voted before in their life. A whole generation yeah. of Spaniards had never voted before. I, uh, as well as living in Madrid, also have a house in a pueblito of the province of Cuenca called Buendia. And during that election, I guided a TV team from ITN News. I, they, they said, oh, yeah. they said, oh, you know, where we don't want to film in Madrid. Where can we go to? We get the you know, feeling of the real Spain. So I said, well, you know, I know this village quite well because I have a house there. We'd, we'd bought it the year before in 76. Yes, España Profunda. Exactly. So we went there. This is a village that had no paved streets, no running water. There was one phone which was run through the daughter of a guy who ran a bar. You had to book a call and go up there. There was no school at that time. And the film crew decided to film part of it in the main bar the Bar Obispo, and to the horror of the Spanish embassy in London, because they complained about the news item, it's like a five-minute news item, yeah. while Adolfo Suarez was giving his televised address on the eve of the election. Creo modestamente que en esta nueva hora de España, y al pedirle su voto, prometimos normalizar nuestra vida política, gestionar la transición en paz, construir la democracia desde la legalidad. The peasants in the bar were all playing cards and drinking and, and had their backs to the TV and were not listening to Don Adolfo really? speaking, which as far as the, Spanish, the then Spanish ambassador in London was concerned was kind of, you know, a sort of, you know, why were we filming this? This wasn't, you know, the real Spain. You know, why weren't we filming in Madrid or somewhere? And we felt very much it was the real Spain because, as you've said, many of these people had never voted before in their lives. The owner of that bar, Vicente Obispo, is a family business who later became the mayor of the village many years later. I asked him which party he was going to, well, more or less the same age as I am, yeah. which party he was going to vote for. And he said, oh, the Partido Vino Tinto, the red wine party. Maybe which is like saying they had no idea who he was going to vote wow. for at all. Is the bar still there? Uh, no, it's closed. He's retired last year. <laughs> And his son doesn't want to take it over, so it's, it's closed. Yeah. In, incidentally, because well, I mentioned the village, of, yeah. of it's, what it, it's shortages. That same village today, you know, we have our paved streets, we have our running water, we have electricity which works not like before. Every time there was a thunderclap, the, the lights would lights go off. Go Anyone wants a, wants a phone has a phone, and we have broadband. Oh, so, times have changed. Yes, it, makes my, <laughs> it has been my micro, microcosmos of the changes in Spain. I just want to talk a bit about the Pact of Forgetting, the Pacto de yeah. Olvido. There, there was consensus from the reformist right and the, and the left, and there was this unspoken agreement for some time not to rake over the past, and then in 1977 there was a law passed, the amnesty law, to enshrine that. Do you think that that pact worked at the time, keeping those skeletons firmly in the closet? Yeah, very, very much so. Mm. Uh, I think it's been mis misunderstood or misinterpreted, that pact. It wasn't, mm. uh, although it's called in English the pact of f forgetting, mm. it wasn't in the sense that everyone was expected to forget all the nasty things that happened in the past. Basically, it was a pact that the political parties in the crucial final years of the 70s were not going to make political capital out of whichever side they'd been on during the Civil War, for pretty obvious reasons. So, uh, so I think that, that was the, the key issue. Mm -hmm. 
it didn't mean, which some people have interpreted as meaning, you couldn't write about the past. Even under Franco, the final years, there were plenty of books coming out which were not favourable to Franco. George Orwell's Homage of Catalonia came out sometime before Franco died. I think I remember, with I think one little passage cut out. I don't know which passage it was. Uh-huh. The president of the think tank that I work for, the Elcano Institute, Emilio Lamar Espinosa, did his doctorate on a man called Julian Basteiro, who was a socialist and the man who tried to negotiate a kind of truce with Franco in the very, very final weeks of the Civil War. That didn't happen. And then when the war was over, he was arrested and he died in prison. Well, Emilio wrote his doctorate on that very man and nothing happened to him. So I just give us two examples to show that the Pact, Pacto de Olvido, even in 1977, let alone now, where there's a whole industry, where Paul Preston claims more books have been written about the Civil War than about the Second World War. Is that right? Yeah. Well. So, at the time, it was the right thing to do. Podemos is sort of shaking that tree now. More than that, it's questioning the whole Constitution of 78. An attempted coup in 81, I don't want to spend too long on that, but um, what were the motives behind that attempted coup that happened in 81? I was in Mexico at the time, so I wasn't here. I've been in Mexico since 78. But essentially, it was a tiny group of Francoist officers, particularly on the Basque Front, i.e. the terrorist organisation ETA. ETA, we should not forget, has killed many more people after Franco died than it killed under him. 864 is the total number of deaths that that are attributed to them in one form or another. Of that 864, fewer than 50 happened under the, far fewer than 50. The bloodiest year was 1980? Well, I think in 1980 there were probably something like 80 deaths or something like that. So, these group of Frankenhofer are unhappy with the moves to democracy, unhappy with legalisation of trade unions, and unhappy on the government's failure to end ETA which, as you know, I mean, <laughs> didn't end until many, many, many years, many years later. later yeah. Those were important points, I think, and it, it fizzled out very quickly. No one genuinely believed that it could have escalated into anything more. If the king hadn't put on his uniform as the Capitan General, gone on TV and called the, the uh, undisciplined officers to account and told them to, you know, stop doing what they were doing, if he did it on that, who knows what might have happened. There are allegations that the king was in the know of what was going to happen. He might, and it wasn't apparently the first attempt of the coup either, or the others, others actually never got off the ground. This one did get off the ground. Personally refused to believe that the king was involved, involved in any way. Something else is whether people close to him might have misinterpreted what the king was saying in the form of, oh, I wish we could, you know, get to grips with Etta kind of thing, and then think, oh, well, maybe the king is, oh, maybe he's giving me a wink, you know, that I can do something, you know, but no, it fizzled out and was massively applauded by millions of Spaniards. Uh, I don't think there's probably been a demonstration since then as big as the one after the coup ended. And the bullet holes still in the ceiling yeah, of the Parliament today, of deliberately. I'm not a great fan of the historical memory law, but so for one reason, I think people should be reminded of the past. And uh, what better way to remind people of the past, particularly foreign visitors to the Parliament, when the guide can point up and say, see those holes there? Well, they're the bullet holes, you know? We came close to losing what we all wanted, but we didn't. Yeah,
1978 new constitution, just briefly about that, it was a very all-encompassing constitution. What kind of form did that constitution take? Well, it was the first time Spain had had a constitution, and it's had quite a lot of them, in, if you go back over the centuries. That, that was the sixth since yeah. 1812. Yeah, there was, that was drawn up by all the major parties. Uh, this is the main important point. Unlike the other constitutions, which were probably drawn up by the party in power and not much else, it was drawn up by the Alianza Popular, the Socialists, the Communists. Uh, there was a Catalan who represented the Catalans and the Basques. So it was a constitution designed to be accepted by everyone except the extreme right, which still supported Franco, yeah, but counted for little, and except for the extreme left to the left of the Communist Party, which also thought that, you know, so democracy was a sham. It was designed to give Spain political stability, which all these years on, well, since 2015, we've had four elections, so maybe, and this gets, it's not worth going into this, but maybe on some points, it hasn't been able to give political stability that it hoped to have given. It was modelled, I think, to some extent, on the Weimar Republic Constitution yeah. and maybe a little bit on the Mexican Constitution. It has a few strange things, like which still cause annoyance, if not anger, amongst some people. I'm speaking of, for example, how the Catholic Church is named in the Constitution, where, yes, we are setting up a non-confessional state, unlike the Franco state, which was a eminently Catholic state, but in the Constitution, although it says that Spain will be a non-confessional state, it still has a sentence on the Catholic Church as kind of being the sort of historical religion of the country. And that may explain why even today, when you do your tax return, there are two boxes. <laughs> you could take a box to give a certain, certain amount to the Catholic Church, or you could take a box not to go to the Catholic Church, but to go to sort of... Um, NGOs and all that kind of stuff yeah. and many people ask well why isn't there a box for Protestants why isn't there a box for Muslims why isn't there a box for Jews it's true that's been uh, talked about a lot and something I, I found very curious the first time I saw that on a tax declaration form yeah. so we are not, a, not as non-confessional as Francis for example yeah. and as you've seen the Catholic Church here is still influential in education and in, you know, matters of for family values, as they call it. You know? I mean, some of the demonstrations that have been held here, ostensibly or not, organised by the church in one way or another, will never be allowed in France. Another big thing to come out of the Constitution was the creation of the autonomous, 17 yeah. autonomous communities, which I just wanted to touch on, you know, after a very centralised state under Franco. We had this devolution known as Café para todos, Café for all. Why, do you know, why was it called that? I don't, I don't know the, orig <laughs> the origin of that expression, except presumably it, w it means that you're all going to get the same kind of coffee. Yeah. Which actually is not the case. No. Because the Basque country is a sort of pecking order. The Basque country has got pretty well full autonomy. I mean, it has its own taxes. It has its own police force. Teaching of its language in schools, if people want it. And lots of other things. It is by far the most autonomous region in Spain, if not in most of Europe. And then you have a sort of order that goes down from that. And as you know, the, the Catalans would like to have what the Basques have. And if not independence. Um, so it was a way of def 
confusing in, in the late 70s when that happened. I think Adolfo Suarez was sort of very concerned that things might get really out of hand in the Basque country, which, remember, there was no terrorist movement in Catalonia. There was a terrorist movement in the Basque country, That's ETA, Basque, yeah. which was extremely effective to begin with. So I think this was seen as a way of defusing Basque tensions. As it turned out, it didn't defuse them at all because ETA regarded the 78 constitution, uh, the parliamentary monarchy, and the devolution of powers to regions as meaningless. A kind of wolf in sheep's clothing, yeah, almost. Exactly. exactly. They were pushing for an independent Basque country, uh, if not a sort of independent Marxist Basque country. And it didn't uh, go anywhere no, far enough for them. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, they were not um, ended until several decades later. So the transition to democracy ultimately successful, you would agree? Yep, I agree. I mean, one can pick holes. It's very easy from today to pick holes in something that happened 40 years ago. Sure. Uh, which is, I get rather angry when the Podemos people start talking about El Régimen de 78, the 78 regime. And of course, regime, uh, for you and I, English speakers, and also for Spaniards, has a sort of certain connotation. When we talk about regimes, we tend to think they are sort of authoritarian. Authoritarian, no? yeah. yeah. We don't call the UK a regime, no? Or the US. So they obviously regard the constitution as questionable and would like to change chunks of it. Personally, I think it's uh, some things can be done. We mentioned the Catholic Church, but basically I see no reason to open up the constitution and you know, start all over again. It's highly complex. It demands referendums and elections and God knows what else. The political parties have been very loath to tinker around with the Constitution. I mean, it's, one should remind ourselves that it's not something set in concrete, although the political class tend to regard it as something, something set in concrete. One matter there which doesn't get talked about much these days is that if Prince Felipe and Queen Leticia get run over by a bus tomorrow, as the law stands, neither of their daughters can take over because, the, right. because the Constitution demands that it goes down to the male heir, whether he's the eldest or not. Right. As you know, Felipe was the youngest of three children of Juan Carlos, not the eldest, but he was the male. So, obviously, um, at some point, uh, unless they think that Felipe is immortal, they're going to have they're to do something about it. It's a minor issue, but even yeah. that, even that they've been loath to do. Because uh, I think they feel, well, if we open it for that, then people are going to say, okay, it, you're opening it, it so why don't you do for, this, why don't yeah, you do that? For many other things. So that was William Chislett. Have a look at his website, williamchislett.com. Lots of links to all of his work on there. Really interesting stuff if you're interested in politics, Spanish society, Spanish current affairs, all of that kind of thing. All published in English. I think there is some stuff uh, published in Spanish as well. And as I said, in the next interview, part two of the interview with William, we'll be exploring what the future for Spain holds. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to follow When in Spain on Instagram, which is at When in Spain One. Do go and check out the When in Spain website, which is WhenInSpainPodcast.com. I'll be publishing, obviously, this episode on there as well uh, with accompanying show notes and a few photos and other bits and pieces. You can find When in Spain on Twitter. And if you want to socialise with other like-minded 
Spain fans, you can join the When in Spain Facebook group as well. So until very soon with part two of the interview with William Chislett, I shall bid you hasta luego. Thank you.